so today we are continuing our series in the Proverbs. And this series we've called The Voice of Reason. And basically the whole idea behind this concept is to take, okay, the world has a particular brand of wisdom. And God offers us a wisdom. And the two seem to be at odds. And one of the things that we wanted to accomplish in coming together with this series is to present what happens with God's wisdom and what happens with the world's way of doing things. And then today, specifically, the topic is work and rest. And I'll tell you that the two, God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom, it's just super evident, particularly on this topic. We have totally lost our ability to have a discipline of rest or even understand what rest really means. But we all feel like we're worked to death. We all feel the anxiety of work. We all feel I'm never caught up. I've constantly got to be after it. And work has become a four-letter word. I mean, it is a four-letter word, but you know what I mean. It's become something that we just, we look at and go, ugh, work. We're exhausted. Many of us are totally burnt out. We're annoyed anytime anything new comes up. Why? You know, throughout history, if you go into whatever culture, however, through the history of man, all the myths, all the religions, everything that has come up, Everybody has always explained work the same way, and Christianity is radically different. All of the ancient world presented work as though it is a curse to us, to humanity. It's a bad thing. We just want to be rid of it. In the ancient world, they understood one of the worst things that you can do to humankind is to impose work on them that makes no difference whatsoever. It's just futility. And if we're honest, we all feel a little bit of that, right? Like, what's the point? So one of the most famous myths that comes out from the Greeks is the myth of Sisyphus. That's a fun name to say, Sisyphus. So Sisyphus is this, he's the king, a founder of Corinth, according to their tradition. And what Sisyphus does, he's this shrewd, conniving guy. He murders to advance himself and he tricks the gods on multiple occasions. And so finally, Zeus has had enough of it and he sends the messenger god to take him. And this is his punishment. He goes down to the underworld. He's taken to a mountain and he is forced for all of eternity to take this massive boulder and to roll it to the top of this mountain. And every time, I mean, if you've ever seen the three amigos in the prison scene, gonna make it, gonna make it, gonna make it, gonna make it. And then it slams him back against the wall. Well, what happens to Sisyphus is he gets right up to the peak of the mountain. He's almost accomplished it and inevitably the boulder slips from his hands, rolls all the way back down the mountain. He's got to walk all the way back down the mountain, get the boulder, and start rolling it up the hill again. Rolling, 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 rolling. And then it slips again, and he goes back down the mountain. Can you relate to Sisyphus? Are there things in your life, labors, that never seem to end, like you're constantly looking at going, oh, there it goes again, and I got to start all over. And let me answer the question for you. Yes, you have lots of Sisyphus-type duties in your life, right? I remember when I was a kid, my parents were big on making beds, 
And it was like, you realize I'm getting back in this thing. Like, why keep doing it? It's just going to get messed up again. Or in your home life, right now, I think there may be mountain lions in my grass. Because every day that I'm available to mow the lawn, it rains. And so my grass is insanely tall right now, and it never stops. It just keeps growing, and the summer comes, and it's like, you feel like you've got to mow it every three days. Dishes. I've got four kids. <laughs> we load the dishwasher, turn around, and it looks like Denny's at closing already. <laughs> or laundry. Can I get an amen on the laundry? Every time you get this thing and you're right up close to the top of the hill, you're almost there, you turn around and it's like, uh, and it's back to face and back to rolling it up the hill again. Grocery shopping, work, paperwork, the toys on the floor. We clean the house and turn around and go back into the living room and Nathan has been a cyclone through the living room. Email. You ever feel good about getting your emails cleared out? On the drive home, you get done, you look at your email, and you're like, and it's filled again, cooking. We all know that feel of futility. It just never stops. It never stops. And the Greeks thought of this as punishment from the gods. There's another guy named Tantalus, where we get the word tantalizing from. But Tantalus stole ambrosia the food of the gods and nectar, the drink of the gods. He stole it from Mount Olympus, and so he was condemned by Zeus down to a pool in the underworld. And what he had in this pool, there was a tree that grew over his head. And this is what happened to him for all eternity. He's got this voracious appetite. He wants to be satiated. He wants to, to be filled. But every time he tries to prop himself up to get to the fruit, the fruit tree just rises up, just barely out of his reach. And then when he says, all right, well, I'm thirsty, and he bends down to take a drink from the pool he's in, the waters recede, and he can't get it. And the idea is, and they knew this, this is the human condition, right? We want to be satisfied. We want to have this. We want to make a difference. We want to get the, the boulder to the top of the hill. We want to taste something that's going to satisfy our desires. Something's going on in this world that always moves it just beyond reach, just beyond reach. And so... We look at work as though it's a curse given by the gods. That's the way all of humanity has always looked at it for all of eternity and all the stories. And there's a guy by the name of Albert Camus. He's a French philosopher. Do not go read him. He is super depressing. The main contribution of his life is trying to determine why we should not kill ourselves. Like that's, I'm not kidding. That's, that's what his whole life was devoted to. He's sad to read. But this is what he says. His most famous work is on the myth of Sisyphus. And he says, the workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and his fate is no less absurd than Sisyphus. But it's tragic only at the rare moments when he becomes or it becomes conscious. And so he's not a believer. And he says, there's three options here. Okay, so the first one is despair. Stop doing the laundry. Send your kids to school in stinky clothes. Use dirty dishes or go buy paper plates. Just quit. Work your way toward an episode of Hoarders. Right? Just quit. None of it means anything. Then the avenue that he takes is this defiance. 
you know what? I may not be able to control anything, but at least I have this boulder. And for the moment that I have the boulder, I'm just going to push this stupid thing, but it's my boulder. I'm not going to think. I'm not going to become conscious of the ultimate thing because that will drive me crazy. I'm just going to focus on what's right in front of me because that's the only way that I can stomach it. And I'm just, this is my boulder, and I'm just going to keep rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it. And the third option, which he rejects, was devotion, trusting that these labors that you do have some purpose when you give them to the Lord. Those are the three options. I can't think of anything else. I think he did a good job summing them up. So what's our route? Despair, defiance, or devotion? See, the scriptures come to us and they give us a radically different view of what work is supposed to be. Our God works. We're told that at creation, he worked for six days, creating a beautiful planet. He's constantly looking back at it going, oh, it's good. It's good. Look at that. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then on the seventh day, he actually rests. And he looks back and he doesn't just enjoy what he's created. The more important of what he does on that Sabbath day, the seventh day, is he stops to enjoy the main purpose of his creation. Do you know what that is? You. He delights in creation. He's a creative God. He wants to create beauty. And then he makes us and we bear his image. So there's something inside of us that wants to create. We want to see beauty. We want to do these really beautiful, profound, meaningful things. Why? Because we're made after his image. We want to work. But we don't want to work if it's just futility. That's maddening. So what is God's work? I love this. He says, in Genesis 2, the Lord planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we, we look at that and we say, you know, that sounds almost, that, that, what does that mean? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. I'll sum it up for you. It's really beautiful. When God makes man before he puts man on earth, he sets aside this tiny little space on the, on the face of the planet and he plants a garden and he makes it beautiful and he puts everything, all the trees and the rivers and, and everything and he makes it beautiful to where if you see it, you just go, oh, I want to be there. And he puts the man and the woman in the garden and you know what he says? You're going to join in my work. The whole earth is not a garden. He says to the man and woman, your task is to make this world beautiful. Your task is to expand the borders of the garden. Your task is to take the uncultivated lands that are outside the garden and take the beauty pattern that I've shown you and bring it to the ends of the earth so that all the earth is beautiful and fruitful and has purpose and meaning. That's your task. That's work. And here's the reality as Christians, that's still our task. I don't care what your profession is. 
I don't care if you're an accountant. I don't care if you're in customer service. I don't care if you're, you work on the back of a trash truck. Your job is expanding the garden. Think about that. From the neurosurgeon to the guy who takes out the neurosurgeon's trash. God, what is God saying here? Both of you are expanding the garden. You're in the same line of work first. How that manifests itself, see where you're gifted. But your primary calling, your primary calling is to expand the garden. What does that look like? That means that we take the design of God, love, joy, hope, the gospel, beauty, how we treat one another, kindness, self-control. We take the beauty of the way that God has meant for this world to be designed and we push it out into the world. How we love our neighbors, how we love our children, how we love our coworkers. We're all expanding the garden. It's really a beautiful way to see that. And if there ever was a time where expanding the garden becomes meaningful, it's in a fallen world where when you go beyond, too far beyond these doors, man, there is some serious pain, serious hurting. People that are in despair, who have secrets and pains and scars that we can't possibly know about, bring that kindness, that design of God to them. Christianity stands alone in telling us your work is utterly meaningful. You know, the earliest creation myth that we have in writing came out of Sumeria, the old Babylonians, and they wrote this myth called, myth called Enuma Elish. And in this myth, the gods are warring, they're polytheistic, and so the young gods revolt against the older gods, and they end up defeating them. Their main god, Marduk, rises up, and the young gods overthrow the old gods. And then the young god of wisdom decides, you know, this keeping up with the world is too laborious on us. It's like slavery. We're gods. We shouldn't have to work. And so this is how the oldest myth begins. It says, Ea, the god of wisdom, created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. The wise Ea created mankind and imposed the service of the gods upon them, which is beyond comprehension. That's basically every religion on the surface of the earth except Christianity. Every religion is telling you, slave, go to work, produce, prove that you're good enough. And then in the end, when you come stand before me, I'll either say, yeah, okay, you're good enough, thumbs up, or... Do you know how radical Christianity is in standing against this idea? Here's, this is what it says. And by the way, humanity is created out of the blood of the enemy gods in this myth. And here, Christianity, how radically it is. God, the gods aren't looking to be freed by enslaving men. The one true God becomes a man, comes into this world, takes on the form of a slave. Why? To set you free. What other religion comes to you with that level of hope and beauty? Let me answer it for you. None of them. 
In every other system, your work defines you. You'd better be good enough. You'd better slave. You'd better work, 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 and prove yourself because at the ultimate end of things, that determines whether you're valuable or not. Blech. And so here comes our God. He rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them out. And what does he tell them? He gives them the fourth commandment. They've, been, they've only known slavery, right? Monday they work, Tuesday they work, Wednesday they work, Saturday, you know, Sunday, all seven days. They're work, 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 never a break. And God delivers them. And he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that them, and he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's after this pattern. Remember the original Sabbath day? Why did God rest on the seventh day? It's not because he's tired. It's because he wanted to enjoy his creation. He wanted to be with you. He delights in being in relationship with you. And now he's telling them, it's not just what you produce. You're worth more than mere slaves to me. It's not about your labors. It's not about what you produce. What I want from you is you. I want to be with you. I want your attention. I want to be in relationship with you. And we have this idea of our work all screwed up in our heads. It's like, you know, this morning... We're called to give an offering to God, and so we call that a tithe, right? And what's the purpose of a tithe? The scriptures, are, they tell us that it's to make sure that our hearts aren't making our possessions the ultimate thing. We give that tithe as a representative that all of it belongs to God. And you're first here. Do you know what the Sabbath is? It's the same. But it's a lot harder. It is far easier to write a check in this American culture than to say, you know what? You're more important than my time. You're more important than my labor. You're more important than my identity. And so I'm going to give myself to you for this one day a week. You ever been to a marriage counselor? I've been, been to several. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Preventative maintenance, usually. But anyway, whenever you go to a marriage counselor, what do they always say? It's like every one of them that you ever go to is going to say the same thing because it's wisdom. They say, you and your wife need to have a date night. Thank you. Why? Because the tendency in marriage is everything crowds out and you're like, well, I know my wife, you know, she's with me no matter what. And so I got to go out and I got to accomplish all these things and she's going to get last place and I'm going to go serve all these things and obligations and da, 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 da. And the marriage counselor says, no, 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 you don't understand. Like if you want a healthy marriage, she has to come first. He has to come first. You need to set a date night to where nothing can come in between you two. Where you send the message to one another that you're above all the other distractions, all the other labors. Sabbath is our date night with God. Because here's the deal. Like, we don't think of it. When we think of Sabbath, we think, okay, it's a time for us to stop just to get rested. 
It is so much more than that. The Sabbath is when we give God our full attention so that he can delight in us. It's his. He enjoys it. When we never give him our focus, when we never give him our attention, we rob him of the delight of us. And vice versa. The Sabbath is that day where we come to him and we say, Lord, I've got all this anxiety and I've got all these pressures and I've got all business crowding in and I don't know how it's all going to get done. But you know what? You're more precious than it. And so I'm going to barricade off some time. And it doesn't have to be. You're not spending all 24 hours of a Sunday. But it's giving yourself some devoted time, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. We started doing this. I've got a five-year-old at home. (laughs) We shut off all the gadgets because here's the deal. If I say, okay, I'm going to spend some quality time with God and I pull out my phone and I'm reading my Bible on my phone, you know what it takes for me to get distracted? Ding. And then I'm off to the races. What was that? Oh, and before you know it, like three minutes later, I'm on Home Depot looking at their sale of lawn chairs. Like it takes me almost nothing to get distracted. And here's the deal. The Sabbath comes and it recognizes our weakness. It says, set it aside, clear it out. Don't come with gadgets or TVs for this time where you're going to devote just to God. And like I said, it's not all 24 hours, but don't come with a phone and a radio and a TV and a computer and everything else because we're not strong enough to resist the distractions. I'm not. And so I've got to have rules of... I am going to isolate myself and give the Lord myself for this brief window of time. And you know what? It delights his heart. But it also preaches a truth to me, which is this. Why do I feel anxious about my work? Why can't I shut my brain off? Because somewhere in my heart and in my mind, I have told myself a lie that my value and identity is entirely fixed upon what I produce. And I can't ever let the plate stop spinning for just a moment because they might crash. And what would that mean for me? This is going before the Lord and saying, my identity does not come from my work. It doesn't come from my emails and keeping the plate spinning. My identity, my value, my worth comes from you. I'm yours. That brings rest. And I'm just going to tell you, we are utterly allergic to quiet. We're all worn out. We're all exhausted. But none of us really, when we get the opportunity for quiet and rest, we don't want it. We're allergic to it. We're too frenetic all the time. They just did a study at University of Virginia. I love this. It's hilarious and terrifying all at the same time. They did a study where they were taking people and putting them in a room with absolutely nothing to do but be with their own thoughts for between 6 and 15 minutes. And they put tons of men through, tons of women through, and they universally they came out and they were like, I hated that. I would do just about anything to not have to do that again. And they thought, really? They were surprised by how viscerally people responded to just not having a phone or not having something to do. And so they thought, well, let's... Let's up the ante. They put in there a button that gave you an electronic shock. That was the only thing. And do you know, (laughs) this is wild to me, that two-thirds of the men that they put in that room chose to shock themselves rather than just be bored and quiet? (laughs) 
one guy shocked himself 192 times. It was Pastor Matt. I'm kidding. Like we can't stop. But here's the deal. Really, when we stop and we give our heart just time to enjoy God with no distractions, to look back on all the the blessings that he's given us, to enjoy the work of our hands, to look back at the garden that he's allowed us to expand, it changes the way we work. We begin to appreciate what it is that we're called to. And when we don't rest, bad things happen. One of the worst things that happened to Israel was the splitting of the kingdom. It used to be Solomon in the days of the Proverbs had built Israel to this grand glory, huge kingdom, massive wealth. And he writes the Proverbs and he gives all of this wisdom to his son Rehoboam. And we can take comfort in the fact that his kids didn't listen either. But Rehoboam, it says, Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel, they come to him. Now Solomon had reigned over this period of prosperity. They expanded and built palaces and the temple and they were busy and huge work projects. And so they come to Rehoboam. Now that this is kind of complete, they say, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And he said, go away for three days. Come again to me. And so the people went away. And Rehoboam went and sought counsel. He sought counsel from the elders that had served along Solomon and then his friends that he'd grown up with, the younger crew. And it said the old men said to him, oh man, if you'll be a servant to these people, they will be your servants forever. Give them rest and they will love you. And the young said, thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I'm gonna add to that yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. In other words, I'm not giving you rest. I'm not giving you what the fourth commandment calls on me to give you. And you know what happens? When all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to him, the people answered and said, what portion do we have in David? Like, this isn't our kingdom. We're just slaves. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look to your own house, David. And so Israel went to their tents. And from that moment on, the kingdom would never, ever be united again. Why? Because the people were desperate for rest. So you fast forward a thousand years and our king is so much better. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, you had a heavy yoke. I'm going to make it even heavier. What does our king say? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, those of you who are exhausted, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I'm just going to tell you, like if you're exhausted and Jesus comes and says, here, I'll give you a different yoke. What you want to say is, I don't want another yoke. I want a mattress. I want to take a nap. I want to stop. I don't want to work anymore. And Jesus says, no, no, no. My yoke, the way that I work, the way that I call you to work is restful. And you think, I want some of that. So the Proverbs come along and they say in Proverbs 16, it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That word commit, the Hebrew is galal, it literally means to roll. 
And what, why it's saying that is in the ancient world, when you had a huge statue or huge stones that were too heavy for you to carry, you'd put them on timbers and you would literally roll them on timbers because they were too heavy for you to carry. And here the scriptures are coming and saying, your labors are too heavy for you. Roll them to the Lord. And your plans will be established. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights are in, in his bag are his work. And let me, let me just summarize what he's saying there. Your work is to do what you can, but roll it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. It's too heavy for you to carry. Why are we exhausted? Because it's not just the physical things we have to do. It's the mental that won't shut up after we're done. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? Proverbs are saying, give it to the Lord, roll it to the Lord. It's too heavy for you to carry. And then he goes on to say, what is his work? The results. What ultimately happens? What the compensation's going to be? That's his work. Leave it to him and rest. Or in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit, same word, galal, roll your way to the Lord. Trust in him and who will do it? He will do it. Or Peter says, humble yourself. Why do we want to control? Because we want to be God, let's be honest. So Peter comes and says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. What do you do? You cast all your anxieties upon him. That's the purpose of the Sabbath, to devote that time all to him. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. There's two types of workers. There's the type of worker that comes and says, oh, yeah, well, my job's meaningless. It's just a paycheck. And what do the scriptures say? No. Your job is not meaningless. You are in the same profession as the pastors. Your job is to take the garden of God's design, no matter where you're at, and to bring it there. Your job's not meaningless, no matter what you do. And then there's the other types that say, but, 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 but my job means everything. I can't afford to fail. It's, it's my ultimate. I, I, what if? Well, I can't stop spinning the plates because what would happen? And God comes to you and says, that's not yours to carry. One of my favorite stories of this in practice is the story of John Quincy Adams. He was our sixth president and the son of our second president. And so after his presidency, he got elected to serve in the Congress again, and he was an abolitionist. He fought to, to fight against slavery, to, to have it outlawed. He volunteered his time as a lawyer. In the movie Amistad, which is a true story, he defended the slave to give them freedom. And he fought against slavery so much that they almost imposed a gag order on him to where he wasn't allowed to talk in the Congress anymore. He ruined his reputation. Everybody kept saying, stop talking about this. You're getting everybody riled up. You're messing things up. Stop, stop, stop. And he destroyed his reputation. And one day he's walking out of the Capitol building and a reporter comes to him. And the reporter says, why would you do this? You've destroyed your legacy. Why do you keep working and fighting and working and rolling that ball? And John Quincy Adams said something. Lock this into your brain and your heart. It's brilliant. He says, duty is ours. Results are God's. Duty is ours. 
Results are God's. We're resurrection people. And everything that we do, we believe that the power of God's resurrection is in us. And we go out into the world to bring life and beauty in the garden to expand it. We want that resurrection power to take over this world. And when Paul is reflecting on what the resurrection can do, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of who? In the work of the Lord. All of us are working for the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is never in vain. Why? We're called to roll away our labors to the Lord. And our labors aren't in vain because he has rolled away the stone of the tomb. He's put an end to Sisyphus. That's not your reality. Your labor is never in vain. Trust him. Roll it to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for how you love us. Lord, we're so quick to toil and toil and toil and toil and roll that boulder up the hill, not understanding why we're given this task. But Lord, we thank you that you're a creative God and you call on us to be creative. You call us to take your garden, your design, and to take it to the ends of the earth, to spread love and kindness and hope and peace that no profession is meaningless when you're walking under Christ's banner. So Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom, one, to see our work as meaningful, to see ways where we can expand the garden, but two, for those of us that are crushed under the weight of the boulder thinking that we have to accomplish it, that we would have the wisdom to recognize that while duty is ours, the results belong to you, and we thank you for that freedom. Help us to seek you out and to recognize that our values, not in our labors, our values come because you love us. In Christ's name, amen.